This program is brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu. Yesterday and the day before, we touched on, at various points, arguments around globalization. I would have spent more time on globalization, but um, I thought we were uh, doing well on cultural districts, and um, so I think that was an intelligent um, use of time. But I would like, as it were, in this 45 minutes, just to go through some of the issues associated with cultural strategy and the impact of globalization. Uh, the reason being, it's a very material um, uh, area or issue and is likely to become obviously increasingly so. So, um, I mean, first of all, what's globalization? Well, it's, it's the internationalization of life in a way that, um, you know, you can make something in Brooklyn and sell it in Paris. So, the silk routes are part of globalization? Yes, but in a way, globalization is so much more now than it was with right. Marco Polo. But in a sense, the whole of the evolution of human history could be seen to be a process of incremental globalization. Yes. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. Enormously Only speeded up. Just sped it up. Okay, so what has accelerated that process? Yeah. One is technology. Um, at some point, I'm going to run out. I'm going to need some... Right, technology? Right, well, that's technology. Yeah. Uh, technology. Right, but what, what is making, what is driving that? But, well, what's driving the supremacy of English, French, English, Spanish, and Chinese? Right, there's a word for that. Deregulation. I mean, uh, I would suggest that, you know, most of the evolution of human history in one term or another is a process of incremental globalization. Um, jazz is a classic um, result of globalization in a particular form uh, as the cultures of... Uh, the Congo and France and uh, Celtic music and um, uh, the Caribbean combined around the late 19th, 20th century. But specifically, in the past 15 or 20 years, changes in technology and changes in uh, uh, financial and other trade regulation has meant that ideas, people, and money whiz around the world increasingly quickly um, uh, and with increasing ease. And that's basically what we mean by globalization. In other words, when we're talking about it, we're talking about a specific chapter usually of globalization, the current one. Um, what uh, I think um, uh, I'd like to do is just run through what, I, what might be certain, might see as certain characteristics of globalization or impacts of it, and then we should discuss basically why they're, what their significance is for culture and cultural policy. The first, I'd say, is that um, 
there is a massive investment that we touched on yesterday in buildings and infrastructure as uh, uh, affluent states basically undertake large-scale economic diversification strategies. And that's really what we were talking about yesterday when we were talking about uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, uh, other emirates, um, Baku, etc. So one is, I would say, that the um, large-scale cultural projects that are basically around nation-building and around diversification of economies that have tended to be um, rooted in, in uh, single industries, oil usually. Second, massive growth in the middle class of an affluent middle class in areas, particularly India, China, Southeast Asia. Third, um, growing inequalities of wealth both within and between states. Relevance, as we'll see, is the growth of a sort of international superclass of collectors and other, uh, both philanthropists and collectors, and their impact on um, cultural provision. Third, fourth, new forms of cultural diplomacy and investment in cultural diplomacy as, um, how do I put it, as uh, countries um, interact in different way, in new ways. India, for example, is currently planning a um, uh, a, uh, uh, a cultural diplomacy model very similar to the Goethe Institute model of Germany or the Alliance Francaise in France, which is to say they are going to build uh, over the next 10 years 60 or so cultural attache, uh, cultural um, um, centers around the world in capitals around the world, uh, uh, doing something very similar to, as I say, what the, the British Council model or the um, uh, the uh, Alliance Francaise in uh, France or the um, Goethe Institute in Germany, uh, a fascinating move of uh, sort of uh, self-confidence. And, and fifth, I would say, obviously very rapid demographic change in the U.S. Um, take a city like Phoenix, or take Maricopa County, which is the larger area in, uh, of, of uh, um, 
Phoenix and the surrounding cities like um, Chandler and Tempe and um, uh, Sun City and um, I'm just trying to think of some of the others around around Phoenix, which is the larger uh, urban conurbation. Uh, it's uh, one of the rapid, most rapid areas uh, 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 growing in the states today. Um, there are cities like Chandler that you probably haven't heard of that are larger than Pittsburgh. Um, uh, if you look at traditional cultural provision there, um, symphony orchestra, repertory theater, etc., uh, and then you look at the, the demographic, there is, it's now um, a majority Latino population. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the requirements of cultural status, even just in language alone, are entirely altered. Uh, why? As a result of basically um, the impact of um, uh, uh, immigration, the impact of uh, the sort of changes in the economy that are directly related to globalization. And what that means for a city like, uh, uh, like um, Phoenix is uh, a transformation in what constitutes appropriate cultural provision. Uh, if you look at the arts organizations, they have traditionally thought of it as a marketing problem. It's, or a marketing challenge, if you like. It's much more than a marketing challenge. It's a fundamental challenge about what is appropriate um, uh, provision. Same in, same in New York City. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's fascinating territory. So I'm suggesting these as candidates of some of the results of globalization that have direct implication for cultural provision and cultural policy. Um, what sorts of things? First, and we'll talk about this in more detail for those of you who, who are here next week, the building boom. Second, specifically and interestingly, I think, a new chapter in the story of the private museum. Uh, in other words, as we, ha we have seen a, uh, we saw a period um, in the first half of the 20th century when um, uh, most uh, um, museum growth uh, was in the area of existing institutions. What we have seen throughout the world more recently is um, uh, private collectors creating museums, small museums, dedicated one way or another to their collections or their tastes. It's a fascinating phenomenon. It continues. It's highly significant in terms of cultural provision because basically a lot of the growth has not been in the traditional institutions. It has been in new institutions um, that are, as it were, um, pioneering. What's one of the most active museums in New York at the moment is the Rubin Museum. The Rubin Museum, um, created by a, um, the guy who invented managed healthcare, Donald Rubin, um, on his own buck. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, who is the director of the Rubin Museum? Donald Rubin. Um, it's a very unusual plot. And the interesting thing about it is, is most of the museum community was sort of like this. Oh my God, what's this about? It's transpired to be extraordinarily successful in terms of its popularity and curatorially reasonably distinguished uh, and innovative. It, it's, as it were, um, you know, an outsider institution in many ways. But um, you know, look at uh, Len, uh, look at Lauder, Lauder, chair of the Whitney, um, but also the creator of the, the Neue uh, Gallery, um, a, a new private museum, Dear, Dear Beacon. Um, these are institutions that have grown up, as it were, outside um, the the main um, network. Um, third, a new chapter in the international art market. I'll come back to its significance. Uh, fourth, and I spoke about this the day before yesterday, a new chapter in encyclopedic museums 
and uh, the challenges faced by, uh, uh, by restitution claims. And uh, last, really picking up uh, this one, a very, very rapid changing local market. Um, let's just uh, go back through those in a little more detail. So the first one we were talking about or I mentioned is um, uh, the building of new cultural districts and the building of uh, 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 new um, signature buildings worldwide. Um, we've mentioned some of them. Dubai, Qatar, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, enormous cultural uh, infrastructure going up in Kazakhstan. Why, you wonder? Um, uh, it's about nation building. Uh, an enormous ziggurat that's just been designed by um, uh, Norman Foster um, as, a, uh, as a performing arts center in, in uh, the capital of, uh, of Kazakhstan. Uh, Singapore, um, the Esplanade, um, uh, now going through a second sp uh, phase of expansion. Um, uh, who would like to talk a bit about construction in China, in Shanghai, Beijing? Uh, yes. Jean Nouvel, yeah, I think yeah. is the architect. Oh no, Paul Andrew. Is it? Yeah, the architect is Paul Andrew. And so it's interesting because it's definitely like a nation building thing and trying to unify the main opera and symphony and, and dance and create a national identity. And it's also right, well, I, um, they might know more about yeah. it, but it's right in the heart of Beijing, I guess, which was an area that's. So do you, a, tell us a little about the scale of building. The size of the building program? Size? Um, I don't know the figures, but um, there are some uh, massive, uh, large scale buildings that worth mentioning, I think. One is uh, Bird's Nest, and yeah. the Water Cupid, and the um, New. I thought the Bird's Nest was, was Kurt Southern Demeron, no? Um, no? Sorry, I don't know the architecture. But, um, and also the new building of the CCTV National. National TV station. Yeah. As I understand it, China's planning to build a thousand museums by 2015. Two Sorry? Two thousand museums by 2015. My figures are out of date. Um, <laughs> now, that's not quite as a, uh, a bizarre uh, a goal. Some of these are relatively modest buildings in small villages, recognizing, uh, as it were, the achievements of individuals or the achievements of the town. But the totality is extraordinary. Um, the Capitol Museum in Beijing, I think, is uh, about 60,000 square meters, um, a second in size to the Palace Museum. In other words, it's as large as the Louvre. I just wanted to make some comments about yeah. like building like iconic those, um, culture institution buildings in China. It's, it seems like. Um, like they wanted to build like a national identity because we have, this is our national performing arts center. That's why they have such like large, some people consider like Bird's Art, um, kind of like a, um, a iconic building right next to the Tiananmen Square, which is of like totally different style. Um, that's why we have the largest and this is the most expensive. We just, the government like putting um, like five billion into that whole project. But um, 
but I'm more curious about the utility of um, the real use of the building, whether it's really open to the community, whether it's really, really like encouraging the emerging artists to go to perform there, not just for the national or government supported groups, um, not just for like a, um, I call it like cultural so project. So when you say you're curious, you mean you're skeptical? Is that, yeah. in other words, that there is, I think it's a there is a, there's a cultural building strategy, but there isn't necessarily a cultural provision strategy? I just don't think that when they build those buildings, they do the real, like, a feasibility study of what, what is the market. Why we only, uh, because I don't think now the need is for building those, like, big, large projects. Maybe it's better to build, like, smaller scale building, but it's more, um, and they can use it for different um, multiple uses, and that can for the ordinary people. So, I mean, I, I'm deeply sympathetic to that view, but I mean, what, what you're saying is that if you look at it purely from the perspective of cultural provision, you would be looking for smaller, more flexible spaces than, uh, as it were, the median um, capital project, which is larger and less flexible. understand because for the government officials it's like they're um, when they're um, on board or it's like for five years they wanted to build something as their like um, benchmark um, to help them to promote to like certain level but once they pass on and once those people got promoted some new people will be like on board and they wanted to build some other like iconic building in China so they're not really thinking of building those as the way of creating like a um, vibrant cultural community in China. They're thinking of how to help themselves to be promoted. I mean, I might be like too extreme in certain ways, but I think that's the re reality going on, and it's also um, the system in China right now. Uh, as for the uh, the national theater, that one site in Amman Square, that's really a a branding of the national identity. And in that place, it's a huge place, and I've been there, I found it, um, it's, it's, uh, it's not so utilitative. And, and the, the space is a big waste. And, um, and the normal people, I mean, the citizens, they don't go to see the, uh, the uh, drummers. Uh, yeah. They can't afford a ticket it's, price. Really yes. Expensive. Even you wanted to go inside to see the building, it's um, uh, forty dollars. No. You have to pay to go no, inside. No, no, inside the building. Me, uh, if you, you go inside the building, you have to pay twenty yuan, ten twenty, 20 yuan. Yeah. Um, but you can't afford to see the uh, theaters that are playing. Right. Uh, but um, but I think the one positive example is the uh, the Capitol Museum in Beijing, which is the as you said the yeah. second largest. In, uh, in China, and uh, that building is, is also huge, but uh, but it's capable of um, serving the let's say community because a lot of Beijingers um, to, to go there on weekends. Most of the exhibitions are for free, and uh, they have exchange exhibitions with other uh, museums around China, and also exchange uh, to uh, with other European countries, for example, um, like Greece. And those uh, and the pro and the price of the ticket uh, are relatively low. Normal people can can afford it. And and, and if you go there and can you can feel the um, 
you can feel that the atmosphere there, there is quite, let's say, uh, a bit of democracy there. I think that's a good step towards the positive. Thomas. Do you think, or, I mean, judging these large buildings now, I mean, I don't know China very well, but I know that their middle class is, is growing rather rapidly. And maybe the, the large buildings uh, are empty today, but what about in five, 10 years? And I'm just trying to, to think, maybe it is a good idea if you've got you know, a billion people to think, what's demand gonna be like in five years when our middle class quadruples in size? One interesting, uh, one interesting thing I want to mention is that uh, normal people, uh, I mean, not, the, not only the middle class, although they can't afford the ticket, they feel proud of the, of the building. Right, there's, there's a sort of what you mean, there's a psychological utility from knowing yeah. that the building exists, yes. even if you don't use it. Exactly. Well, that's similar here. But, go. Right, and they're often associated with big openings. Um, but I guess the question, I mean, for me the question is, and the jury is out, the question is, when you build a building, you can only judge its success some years after it's been completed. Everybody wants to rush to judgment. Um, uh, but, you know, there are many perspectives through which to judge success. If you look at a project manager's perspective, the perspective that informs the project at the time you're designing it, there are, you ask yourself three questions. Is it on time? Is it on budget? Does it fulfill the program? Okay? And that's what you're obsessed with. Now, history couldn't care less about that. In other words, when history looks at the Sydney Opera House, they don't say, was it on time? Was it on budget? Um, they may say, did it fulfill the brief? Um, uh, but the criteria, basically, is, you know, is it a sustainable proposition? And does it give some sort of vital, larger contribution to the community? And how do people respond to its architecture? Sydney Opera House is simultaneously the least and most successful post-war building. It's the least successful because it was 13 times over budget. 
It was how many years late? Oh, almost 15 years late. It was 15 years late, and it doesn't work well as an opera house. And the bill to, to change it is $1 billion. And yet, I would suggest that it's also one of the most successful buildings in the world. Why is it one of the most successful buildings in the world? Because everybody loves the bloody thing. In other words, it, 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 it engenders affection, and God knows not much contemporary architecture engenders affection. Most people feel very affectionate, uh, affectionately about it. And, and they say about 7 million people walk go there. And Sydney only has a population of 3 million, so 7 million people go through it in any one year. It is the most recognisable uh, uh, physical icon that's been produced in the post-war period. I'd say the Guggenheim was the second uh, in Bilbao. Um, uh, and... Um, so, you know, is it a success or a failure? You can't answer that question. I can't answer that question because it depends on what criteria you are applying to it. So, uh, but clearly, I think um, for when one's looking at these, these rather um, uh, ambitious nation-building projects, the question that I think everybody's asking is about long-term sustainability. And it's exactly what we were talking about yesterday. Was it yesterday or the day before? I'm losing track of time now. Yesterday or the day before when we were, when we were saying, well, one of the problems in Philadelphia, for example, with these larger projects is that in, they have a very strong political mandate behind them. But the very strength of that political mandate prioritizes them for funding purposes. And as they are prioritized for funding purposes because they are so high on the civic agenda, they tend to leach the resources out and away from the smaller organizations because they, uh, those smaller organizations are not as loud or effective voices at the civic table. And so what, they have, what they're doing over time is preempting resources so that uh, even if they increase the pie of resources a little, in other words, there's more contributed and earned income coming in as a, as a result, it's not proportionately enough so that all organizations become more thinly capitalized. And when you, i.e., i.e., they're spreading their resources over a wider, wider base. And when you look at uh, a lot of these building projects, I think, not all of them, but a lot of them, you, you are inevitably drawn to the question about, A, long-term viability, because even if, um, uh, even if they are full, they will still take significant public funding. B, what the programming strategies are for them. In other words, what is the content strategies? And is the thought being given to content strategy at the same time that it's be, being given to the physical strategy? And C, are they flexible enough? And what I mean by are they flexible enough is that we are entering, I think, you know, most people recognize that we're entering a period when um, uh, expectations of entertainment are changing rapidly. And yet we are building a high, we are building, the very act of building is about uh, creating um, uh, uh, high, fairly inflexible, very large-scale spaces. A lot of these spaces are, um, uh, are performance spaces of 3,000 upwards, let's say. 3,000 is about the maximum size you can play acoustic music in without amplification, the absolute maximum size. So basically, you're creating halls that have you know, a particular requirement. So um, I, I'm personally fascinated and slightly worried by uh, what the long-term programmatic implications are, because these are, once you've built these things, there is a sort of logic to them. I remember once being uh, approached by the... Um, 
um, Soros Foundation. Uh, be, this was years ago because in uh, throughout the uh, Eastern Bloc, there were basically Stalin and uh, Brezhnev period um, uh, cultural centers built in in many many cities, large, ugly, dysfunctional buildings, and the question was, what is the adaptive? What what's an appropriate you know adaptive reuse for these buildings? The answer is none. The answer is knock them down. Um, uh, in other words, it's almost impossible to think of a, a you know, an imaginative, elegant, you know, useful future for, 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 for those buildings. And um, uh, it's the same with performing arts centers. It's very difficult once you've built them. If, you're, if you haven't judged it right, it's not as if you can say, okay, well, we'll just tweak it here a bit and tweak it here a bit. It's very, you know, there is a great deal of inflexibility built into the system. So that when you're planning them, if you're only thinking about, as it were, the architecture and the immediate impact, and you're not thinking strategically about the long-term viability, then um, uh, it's very difficult to deal with those problems after they're built. And I guess the fear is, with a, a lot of the current building boom, is that it, it creates a very big hangover. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, uh, there was a sort of uh, um, excess of religious fervor in Britain in the mid to late 19th century. Every little village uh, uh, where I come from has about five chapels in it. Um, you know, there's a Baptist chapel, there's an Anabaptist chapel, there's a Methodist chapel, there's this, there's that. Um, and those chapels, um, most of them have been converted one way or another into sort of, you know, funky houses and, uh, you know, and meeting halls and what have you. Um, uh, but it's fascinating because it, was, it, it looks and feels a little like the cultural building boom, you know, may, when we look back at it, be similar. In other words, you'll be able to walk around a city and say, oh, yeah, that was as a result of the cultural building boom of the, of the uh, late 20th and early 21st century. Um, so I think that one, this, this period of nation building, we have chosen, I mean, I guess, here's, here's the one other question I'd throw out there. Why is it that culture and cultural buildings have become the central piece of kit in, in symbolic nation building? Why is it that, that um, arts buildings have such a central role at the same time that we are also saying that in many ways traditional high culture has less of a grip on the public imagination. In other words, isn't there something weird going on here? At the very time at which we are most aware of the challenges of creating audiences and generating demand is also the time at which governments have gone hell-bent into, um, uh, into uh, building cultural uh, infrastructure. What's going on? I don't know if it's a general principle, I don't know if it's a law, but um, it's, um, it's certainly the case that it's, it's much more, you know, uh, it's much more difficult to get uh, uh, younger audiences to sit down formally for performances that have a hard start. I mean, I see that in, just in concerts. Um, uh, when you look at who's late for a concert, you can, you know, there's a strong age um, bias towards millennials. Um, uh, but I think, but yes, generally that is true, and it's a big challenge. Is that a global uh, I think so. I think so, yes. 
that's going to change everything. Well, it is changing everything, yeah. But, but to your question yeah. about why museums, yeah. I mean, I, I think well, of, or performing arts. Or why why yeah. culture? I think partly because, you know, once upon a time, like think of Milan, it was a Duomo. You know, once upon a time, it was religion that was the centre of a town. Yeah. At other times, you think of Reichstag in Berlin, right. it was politics. And these days, in pluralistic societies... Secular societies, and, too. And secular societies, with not much faith in politicians. Right. <laughs> um, culture is one of the few neutral grounds left, I think. I would also wonder, if in, a, in a more globalised world, if, if our cultural pursuits are still one of the, the more national identifiable things we have, versus, say, Sports or well, I don't know what else you would build. I, I, thought, I thought somebody was going to suggest that sport was up there with, uh, with um, culture because in a, in a way it is. You know, just as we have gone into, you know, we went into the building boom for culture, we also in a big way uh, went into the building boom for, for sport. You know, um, uh, the stadium <laughs> phenomena and my stadium's bigger than your stadium is a, you know, is a very, very similar uh, phenomenon, I think. Yeah. But the demand side of the sport, uh, the sport equation is, is healthier than the demand side of the arts equation. Well, and also, they're building up for national identity, but then they're, all these buildings are looking very similar, and they're using architects from other places, and then they're, they have the symphony and the opera and the ballet. They're all kind of similar repertoires with international artists. So it's not like it's unique to that country, even though they're Right, but the but that, I mean, I think you're right, uh, but I think that the the symbol of national, as it were, self-confidence today is in part that you have a global city with global architectural inter, uh, influences, and that there is an international style, and that you are part of that international community. In other words, um, I mean, I've just seen it at a sort of anecdotal level. Uh, when you have an architectural competition, uh, um, uh, most people are very happy if it turns out, most people on the home team are very happy if it turns out you've got an international architect. It is seen as being, you know, a sort of symbol of um, virility, if you like, that you end up with a, uh, um, uh, you end up with an internet, you know, uh, 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 an architect working internationally and preferably a foreigner. architect to build this a new create uh, somehow creative architecture to show their care about the culture uh, which is uh, people can see people can touch it's it's not invisible like some art art so I mean this is a easy way for, for the government but uh, I don't think it's uh, maybe it's positive for the cultural development uh, uh, for example in China like you just said, uh, many, many uh, museums are planned to, uh, to build. Uh, many of these are directed by government, not by uh, the private collector. Uh, I think that, that's the uh, Chinese government wants to show they care about culture, but uh, the challenge, the most challenge uh, the museum will face is that they 
the life of the collections. So, um, mm, <laughs> I forgot my collusion. <laughs> I, sorry, yeah, go. I, also, it's, you know, culture is, is almost a, a leisure activity. So, a nation is putting so much effort into its culture, it, it's almost assuming, you know, we've got everything figured out already. You know, this is a great place. You know, we don't need to worry about clean water and, and hospitals. Yeah, it's, and, it, it, you know, it's, we're, we're it's part of the agenda of modernization, yeah. We're, we're advanced enough that we can take our, our leisure time very seriously. I, I agree with all that. I, but I still, I mean, and I think that you're absolutely spot on. I think that in a sense, you know, during religious ages, we uh, felt very, you know, uh, uh, confident building cathedrals um, as, as assertions of national or regional um, confidence and self-confidence. In a secular age, uh, you know, there was a generation of building public libraries. Uh, the public library's function has changed so radically that most libraries are going through sort of existential crises about what it is that they are there for and there to do. Um, uh, you know, uh, but when, when you're planning, not just national level, but an, uh, just an urban planning level, and you're saying, what's my centerpiece? you actually have a fairly short list. In other words, uh, you know, you can build a park or you can build, you know, you can build a park or you can build a museum or you can build a performing arts center. In other words, curiously, it's almost like a failure of imagination in some ways that we have reverted in our, you know, nation building and urban planning so often to arts buildings as the civic convening place, which is effectively what they are. In other words, it's not even primarily about the performance spaces. It's about them as generators of social capital. It's about them as meeting places. Uh, if you look at something like uh, the South Bank in London, uh, which uh, uh, uses as its stat line the nation, sorry, um, the uh, uh, London's living room, what they mean is that the ancillary spaces, the public spaces around it are a gathering place. Um, uh, uh, if you look at something like, um, uh, you look at something like Millennium Park in Chicago, uh, and you look at the combination of outside you know, performance space, the big uh, space designed by Frank Gehry, these are not so much just about, or, or even primarily about what they are for, for performance purposes. They're about uh, magnets for social gathering, creating social capital, et cetera. And I think that um, that's, you know, uh, as important as their symbolism is, is that they, are, they become destinations as much for, as you said, the seven... How many people do you say? Seven million people go to the uh, Sydney Opera House. Yeah, no, Most of go through it. Right, go through it. I mean, that's the key point. And I, I know the guy who used to run it for a while, Michael Lynch, and Michael uh, opened up all sorts of fantastic, um, uh, you know, tours of it, um, and up, you know, up and around it. Uh, and that it's almost just the sheer monumentality, so much as as as, as their. You know, their function as performance. And, and can I say, I, th I really agree with you, and I really think it influences museum, particularly, I mean, I know museums best because that's why I work yeah. with design now. So you think of something like Museum of Modern Art, in that new redevelopment of it, it's got that fantastic space that just runs through the middle. And if you yep. stand and look, there's just a huge amount of, sort of social interaction going on there, regardless of whether you actually, see, you know, you don't actually see any art, whereas the traditional museum would have been much more formal and would have sort of forced you very quickly into seeing the great works, which is why you went there. But there you could actually just hang around the foyer and have quite a good and interesting time or go into the sculpture garden. You know, it's, I think the most social interaction is really important now. The most spectacularly successful cultural project in Britain in the last 10 years is Tate Modern. 
Tate Modern is open 10 years this month. And um, uh, it's uh, on a, you know, it's on the, the south of the river in a disused power station uh, in what was Southwark, which is a tough area of the city. And um, uh, it, uh, it's an enormously ambitious project. And uh, it's actually built, uh, one of the weaknesses of, of, of Tate uh, is it has a relatively weak um, contemporary art collection. So it's not as if it's being built around a stunning collection. Um, uh, but it's built around a stunning space. And they have animated that space very well. And um, uh, it has become, it, it exceeded vastly all visitor estimates um, as much for the drama of the, the, the building and, if you like, the, um, the zeitgeist around it as much as the art in it. And if you look at the critiques and the most of which have been incredibly kind to it uh, uh, and complimented it, the one thing that people say about it is how few people go there to look at the art. In other words, that um, uh, it, you know, it's got fantastic retail, it's got great restaurants. The um, turbine room which is the central gallery, is just this magnificent jaw-dropping space where they have different contemporary interventions in it, most of them mildly ironic or humorous um, uh, in one way or another. In other words, they use the space in melodramatic ways. You know, one artist made a little sort of crack, you know, pseudo-crack in the floor with hands coming out of it, etc. So, so, you know, uh, and generally, there isn't enormous public affection for cutting-edge contemporary art. Cutting-edge contemporary art is one of the least you know, popular forms of uh, aesthetic expression. Most people say, what the hell is that? And yet, um, uh, and yet Tate Modern has made an institution devoted to cutting-edge contemporary art the hangout place uh, uh, in, in London. And I think that that is primarily about the importance of creating dynamic civic spaces. Uh, and the great thing about art, visual art, vis-a-vis -vis performing art, is that you can go there to hang out. And the big challenge for the performing arts vis-a-vis -vis, um, visual arts is the performing arts, you've got to be there by a certain time, you'll miss the performance, there are conventions around performance, you're gonna, you're, it's going to be evening use, you're not doing it on your terms, and you are, as it were, forced to have the engagement with the art that often people going to art galleries don't necessarily want. In many ways, ironically, art galleries are the secular equivalents of religious meeting of, 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 of churches. They're where people go to contemplate and decompress, almost irrespective of the content, I suggest. Yeah, um, what if you have this building, which was planned to be uh, uh, a symbol of, nat of national pride of nation building, but after a few years, it didn't turn out to be that big, and, and it became um, a, a place where it's not no longer used. It yeah. doesn't draw people. It in. happens. What should you do with it? Are you going to I have absolutely no idea, <laughs> but I think it's I, I think it is the question, and the reason that I think it is the question is that there are occurrences of that. One of the things that happened with the National Lottery, we, we spoke a bit uh, a few days ago about uh, the phenomenon of the National Lottery in the UK. What happened with the National Lottery is that um, uh, a lot, there was suddenly a great influx of money available to arts organizations exclusively for capital pro processes, uh, projects. Now, those institutions that had been planning for a long time 
had reasonably well-formed plans. And therefore, they could present these plans, secure the funding, and go ahead. But that only used about a tenth of the funding because the funding was so much, the available funding was so much greater and came on, it was like turning a big spigot on. So many projects were formulated to fairly short notice without the sort of lapidary long-term process of planning that poverty forces on you. As a result of which, we have a large number in the UK of buildings that um, where the questioning process was not as it should have been why, it was simply what. So the lottery process basically asked, what are you going to build? How much, you, you know, how much is it going to cost? What they didn't ask really hard was why, why, why? And indeed, I, I got involved in the revision of the legislation for the incoming Labour government in 1997, which was basically about how to change from, uh, from a process that asked what to a process that asked why. But the result of which is that uh, we have dotted around Britain uh, a fairly significant number now of very large-scale uh, projects where the why was inadequately thought through, and they are um, all sorts of dreadful things have happened to them. In Sheffield, there is a um, museum of popular music um, uh, with uh, no support, um, which is closed. Uh, and, it, and it is this very large building that they are rifling around looking for an alternative use for. Um, there's a project in, uh, in, um, uh, outside Manchester called the Cplex, um, uh, which is a similar sort of, uh, wasn't thought through. Um, the operating plan doesn't work. People aren't coming to it. So, uh, and, I, uh, and my fear is that, you know, it, where there's a very rapid process of, uh, 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 of planning and construction, with a strong political mandate, that's the risk. And as I say, they're highly inflexible spaces. There is not a secondary market in opera houses. There's not a secondary market in theatres. You can't, as it were, um, convert, or, or only with the greatest difficulty, convert something that is designed bespoke for a particular form, like repertory theatre, like opera, uh, like classical symphonic music, and then retool it for other purposes. So I think that that is, that is the next generation. That is this generate in part this generation's legacy to the next generation, which is what are the challenges of adaptive re reuse for um, for uh, these projects. Um, Michael, um, welcome. Uh, I'm General Counsel of Viacom. Uh, so Viacom is a uh, big company in the media business. We own the principal assets today are Paramount Pictures uh, and MTV Networks, which is about 140 uh, cable networks around the world. Uh, and BET networks. Um, over the years, we've owned lots of other businesses, including uh, CBS and Blockbuster Entertainment and uh, a big outdoor company, Showtime Networks, the paid television operator, uh, and, uh, and many others. Um, I kind of came to it through a circuitous route. I started out as an electrical engineer, being really interested in technology. Um, I uh, ended up working in the Silicon Valley for a law firm and, and uh, took a lot of startup <coughs> companies in the tech space public. Uh, with that, ended up working for uh, the West Coast office of a big New York law firm um, and did some mergers and acquisitions transactions for them. Ended up going to work for a client of all things in the mining business. So I, I, was, I was general counsel of a mining company for three years. Um, and I liked rock so much I came to MTV. So uh, 1993, the, a guy who was a friend of mine from Sherman Sterling became general counsel of ICOM. He asked me to come work for him partly because he liked the technology angle and he thought that was coming to media and entertainment. So uh, I thought that sounded like more fun than mining and I came to New York 
from Denver and, uh, and started in that job, and that's now been 17 years. He's CEO now, and uh, I'm, I came as Deputy General Counsel. I'm General Counsel. Um, over the years, I've done a variety of other jobs besides the General Counsel job, so it kind of morphs inside uh, the corporation. We've been through, in that period of time, five CEOs and lots of different corporate structures. But uh, So I manage the technology function for a while. I do real estate. I do other things. Um, and I'm, pr I'm pretty deeply involved in strategy. Uh, so um, that's what I do as my day job. Been involved with Jazz at Lincoln Center for, um, I guess, a decade now, believe it or not. Uh, maybe more, a little more. Um, and so, uh, been spending spent a lot of time dealing with uh, the Jazz at Lincoln Center organization, trying to do what I can to help out, and uh, a variety of other things too. So let me go to the heart of why I thought it'd be interesting to to drag you in here. Um, arts organizations are experiencing a sort of vortex of changes around them. Changes in technology, changes in demographics. It's almost like a mantra. We always sort of trot these things out. But you've only got to think about them to realize they are very, very real. Changes in the way people use their leisure time, etc. These are exactly the same forces that are affecting your uh, uh, customers and your working environment. What we seem to have done is to develop exquisite diagnoses, absolutely very, very refined diagnoses, and absolutely no prescriptions. In other words, we could talk about it till the cows come home, but we don't really have much of an idea of fundamentally how we're going to change our model models to accommodate these. Now, you know, that's because we are who we are. You are um, you're working in an industry which is uh, which which is um, experiencing the same things, but appears, as it were, to um, uh, to be rapidly trying things. In other words, is far far more action oriented. And as you once said to me, never tries not to take big big bets, but tries to take lots and lots of little bets. So what I want, I, I guess, one of the things I want to get at is, how do you look at these same changes that we waffle on about all day? Um, how do you monitor them, and how do you develop strategy in the face of them? Right. Well, um, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, one of the things I've learned over the last you know, 10 or 15 years is that most of what you're reading about is noise. Most of what you're reading about is noise. Um, our fundamental business at Viacom when I got there in 1993 was the cable television business. Um, it's probably three times as big today. Um, people are actually watching it on average an hour more television a day than they were 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, and the revenue and the, the size of that business um, is, uh, continues to grow and the traditional media continues to be out there. So I think one of the first things to remember is your core business, what you're all about, can't be, shouldn't be abandoned in the face of all of this noise. When, when I first got there, there was interactive cable television, uh, which at that time uh, was, we did an experiment. We had a, a cable television system that we owned in California that we wired everybody up with fiber optic cable and on the other end we actually had people on roller skates inserting DV, uh, VHS cassettes in, so to try uh, video on demand. Um, you know, that then morphed into people discovered that interactive TV was not it, it became the internet. The internet was something different, it was AOL. Um, these businesses go through these rapid cycles um, and you can't get yourself too caught up with them. What you have to do is you have to figure out about what you are about and what your core skill set is about. Um, and try to figure out a way to get some um, in business strategy is about trying to get some leverage in that spot. 
So it's trying to figure out where you are and where you can be, where you can gain um, some competitive advantage that you can sustain that differentiates you and which is very hard for other people to replicate. Um, in the case of our business, that's uh, creating long-form creative content. It's about creating movies. It's about creating television shows. Um, it's about lots of ancillary stuff so around that. How do you come to that view? In other words, um, there is a strategic consensus, you're saying, within Viacom that your core product is long-form content. Right. So is that an act of faith, like the mission of an arts organization? Or is that a, something that, you know, is that a negotiable? It's not, that, you know, it, it, to, first of all, to do, some, to do something else would require a fundamental restructuring of who we're, we are. Okay. So we start by the fact that that's what we're good at. Um, right. And that's what, the, the, and, we, and we have a sustainable advantage there because it's not easy to be good at that. Um, it requires a lot of capital. It requires a lot of infrastructure. Um, we are distribute. You know, we're, it, it's not just creation, I guess, but it's distribution. So creating a distribution organization is very hard. Um, there have not been many that have been created. The last one that tried was DreamWorks, and they ultimately failed and sold the company. Um, and that was more than a decade ago. Um, uh, the cable television business, getting distribution in cable television for your programming, is hard. Uh, sustaining an audience is hard. And audiences build and and decline, but they do that. Um, they don't do it overnight, so it's manageable and it's something that you can create. So we're, we're good at that, and we have, um, and there is a, uh, a sustainable advantage around that. Um, we've created brands that are uh, sustainable and have mindshare. So if someone else was going to launch a music channel, uh, it would take it many, many years and lots of capital to have the resonance of an MTV. So when people tune to MTV or they see MTV on the street, they know what that means. And that, uh, that encourages people who are interested in what MTV stands for to participate in the programming and tune to it. So we have a lot of things there that have tremendous value, and it's about nurturing those things uh, as we go along. When I first got to the company in 1993 and we bought Paramount, um, the other thing that we were simultaneously doing was disposing of cable television plant. All right, and we got in 1995, uh, we first entered a deal, maybe it was 1994, we first entered a deal to sell our cable television plant. And one of the reasons there was because their um, cable television plant requires lots and lots of capital. Uh, we had a million subscribers. There were people at 15, 20, 25 million subscribers. Um, we were not at scale. Yeah. And we weren't sufficiently, um, so we didn't have an advantage over other people who were participating in that business. At the same time, we saw competition developing in uh, distribution. Satellites were developing, so where there was one cable operator, there were three or four different ways to get multi-channel television. Uh, now there are more with the internet. Um, and as these different systems compete with one another, we saw that as more of an opportunity to gain uh, a strategic advantage in having unique content, copyrighted content, distinctive content, distinctive brands uh, that would have value and that all these different forms of distribution would want and would, uh, would not be willing to be without because it would hurt them and their ability to compete. And so that's how we think of strategy. And that's been, it's been a very successful strategy. Now, there is all this great new media stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a lot more interesting, a lot more fun to talk about, we'll talk about it. Uh, because I do think that a lot of these trends are really important. I'll get to you in just one second. They are really important, but one can't forget that, that, um, that most of those businesses are, are, at least as they affect us, are relatively modest businesses. I have, you know, reluctantly come to the same conclusion, or it could be highly relevant to mission. But very few of these areas are going to turbocharge your core business, sort of, or transform 
transform the economics of your business model overall. So I guess my question is, are any of them? In other words, do you see, do you see anything on the horizon that is, that is potentially so great as to change in the way that, for example, the internet change models? Well, did you have a question first before we move on, or do we move faster? Yeah. On the, on the topic of your content, um, and maybe you could speak as to how you choose content and how it gets produced, because it seems to me one advantage that you have in your business that the arts is a little bit maybe uh, less flexible with is that you can change to meet the consumer's kind of taste of the moment. So reality TV is becoming popular. You can show less music videos and more reality TV, whereas Sometime in the performing arts, you know, you present opera. And right. Opera is no longer popular. You can't start doing reality TV. That's that's um, really true. I, I wonder if you could talk about how you how you choose content. Well, in in, in our business, in some ways, it, it is easier. Although we do we do have to reinvent ourselves. Particularly, MTV does. Um, you know, those of you who watched MTV ten years ago and look at it today, it doesn't look like the same channel. There's no more music videos. <laughs> yeah. There were actually there weren't ten years ago either. That was a secret too. <laughs> music television's not even in the name anymore. Uh, it's just MTV. But um, but the channel changes with the generations of people, and so it, it's it's targeted a specific demographic. Uh, and as people age out of that demographic and there are new people coming in, we have to serve that group. And so that group changes, and so we're very focused on that. Um, if you are, if your mission is, we're also, we're also based, our businesses are based on going very, um, on mass market in a way that the opera doesn't necessarily need to be, right? If you, if you have a re very impassioned uh, core of people who do what you want to do, um, that's an audience too, and you can serve that. In fact, in some ways, cable uh, was the serving of neat, what, what we thought of as niches at the time. When cable first started up, there were three or four broadcast networks. And, uh, and they were serving very broad swaths of America. And this our, our innovation was having one that aimed at kids and one that aimed at young adults and one that aimed at uh, you know, middle-aged women and various sorts of other demographics. Uh, and we were able to give them something that wasn't uh, quite as toned down and was more niche and you know, cost-effective, we were able to reach that. The internet has obviously brought those niches down smaller. One of the things that opera and performing arts and the like have been able to do is actually serve niches. And one of the things that we've been talking about, for example, that the internet can do is enable you to serve niches that aren't necessarily all geographically close together. Um, the technology is enabling a lot of new and, and things. For us, it's principally been a mar about marketing. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's become the most important thing for us uh, as of recently is the importance of what we call the social graph. But the, uh, the Facebook, Twitter um, phenomenon of people beginning to get information about things. People have always gotten information about things from their friends. They hear about it. Somebody who they care about says this is great and they want to go talk to that. Um, a lot of what that was has now become much larger and more efficient and online. So people are communicating with their friends on Facebook and on Twitter and an email and various other sorts of ways. And so marketers are getting much more sophisticated about tapping into that community in a way that uh, is a very effective marketing device. It's much more effective to hear about um, something great when you hear it from your friend because people are, we're finding people are discounting uh, traditional media, believing it less, more savvy to uh, marketing than they used to be. Um, but, but being able to figure about a way to get your audiences to be the people who are selling whatever it is that you're trying to sell, getting them to tune in, getting them to watch, getting them to engage, 
with your characters or your network or your movie um, is becoming a very, very important part of the way we market. Um, a really good example of this actually uh, is we had a, you may have seen a, a, a movie called Paranormal Activity. Um, Paranormal Activity was a very small movie um, that we bought with the intent of remaking it. We never intended to distribute it, but we liked it. I think we paid $200,000 to buy it. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, the development process is long and hoary, and people make various decisions about what's marketable. And the decision was made that they weren't going to make it into a movie, and so we said, why don't we distribute this? Um, and we put no media spend against it. Absolutely not. We, we took this movie, and we did a midnight screening on a college campus. And we set it up in a way that the college students would talk to their friends about what they saw. And uh, the next Saturday night, it was just one night, it was just at midnight, it was sold out. And so we spread it to 10 colleges. And at TED College campuses, again, it was at midnight, it was sold out. And, um, and we used, and we set up websites, and we set up tools, and we had an, inter an internet campaign that asked people to, um, to, to encourage uh, their local movie theaters to uh, make the movie available in their markets. Um, and people would send us around, and they sent it to their friends. And we can, you can actually monitor it now. There's techniques about seeing what people are talking about on Twitter and what people are talking about on Facebook. It's not just about who's coming to your site, but how active the network is. And we could watch it grow, and we could watch it build, and we developed a release strategy that went along with the way the social graph built. And we ultimately did more than $100 million worth of business. And uh, it was really amazing, all with no, no paid media whatsoever. And for, I think for arts organizations to be able to figure out how to tap into using these tools into getting their audiences to communicate with each other and giving them the tools that help them communicate with each other can be a really important marketing device. Figuring out what the message you want, but also engaging and listening to and participating in the conversation about whatever it is that you do. And, and then um, uh, it gives you that ability to listen and it gives you that ability to market. And that really is, that's not noise anymore. That, you know, the specifics of how each campaign work are gonna require people to really understand the tools, but each one's gonna be different. Um, it needs to be different. It needs to be innovative and new and, and um, uh, something that people are finding interesting because they haven't seen it before. But at the same time, it's built on the same, uh, you know, social structure, social media structure. Yes? I'm just curious. I've worked on some social media stuff with an organization, and it seems like the people that are participating and engaging in that are the ones that are already going to be your audience anyway. And a lot of times, like, the element of being genuine to that audience, like, audiences are really receptive to that, and they don't like feeling like they're being marketed to, or they'll just ignore you or cut, cut you off. So how do you avoid um, that with any sort of online media? Um, it is not easy. Um, it's not easy. You have to listen, and you have to be genuine, and you have to really figure out what it is that's going to motivate your audience to talk about you. Um, and by the way, reaching outside of your social circle is not always what you need to do. Right, activating your base and getting them, you know, from sitting at home casually interested about using Opera as the example, and actually getting up and going, um, even if it's within your people who kind of are mildly interested in Opera is is one of the fundamental things you're trying to do. Uh, but you know, certainly we find with jazz, you know, even if you just invite one other person or you say I saw something cool or you email somebody a clip, give them some clips. You know, don't necessarily market to them, but give them some clips that they can share with their friends. One of the things we started doing with a lot of movies, we discovered that some of the piracy that we were seeing in movie theaters and people watching things online 
was people wanted something that they thought they would go to the movie, they would pay the ticket price, but then they wanted to share it somehow. And so um, we're starting to give people tools to share it. We're starting to give them clips and, and experiences and added information and other sorts of things, not only that they can have themselves, but that they can say, look, I just saw this guy, he's amazing, you should see his clip. And then you know, give them some tools that they can find some more things. And then give them some tools that they can figure out that they can experience it themselves you know, next Thursday at 8 o'clock. So um, that is, part, I think one of the things that, that marketing has done, and you're, you're talking to guys in a law department, so this is kind of some of the things I'm hearing, and I'm not, I've listened to the guys who talk about this, and, but they're yeah, being sensitive to it and figuring it out is, is, is really always unique. But um, one of the things that this new media marketing requires is a certain amount of uh, what one person described as leading but not feeding. Okay, it's like giving them the tools, but not saying this is what you have to do. Yeah. This is not, not, you know, buy this from me. It's, you know, it's giving them the little pieces. It's hearing about what they want to be doing and how they want to be interacting with your media, but, giving, but letting them figure out how they want to do it. Um, giving them a little more creativity, giving them, and not too much. You know, it's actually people don't really want to be writing their own symphonies by being given the, their own tools. Um, we have a business, Adrian met these guys. Um, it's very interesting. We have a business that you may have seen. Uh, There's a video game called Rock Band, um, and it, right? And it's it's a, it's it's a company called Harmonix uh, that we own. Um, these guys are really cool. It's really interesting to what they do. They had about ten games that were uh, commercial failures uh, before they really hit on a formula that people really liked. But what they started out doing was giving people tools to create their own music. And what they discovered was that that didn't sell very well. And they discovered what people really wanted was a karaoke experience, where they, their favorite rock songs they could play along on their guitars. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that um, it, it, you know, I think this, the marketing kind of has to find that right balance between, uh, you know, if you look at YouTube, you'll find that people really aren't all that creative and they really don't do a great job creating whatever it's two minutes or ten minutes or thirty minute experiences. Um, but giving people the pieces so that what they can create can be kind of cool, but it doesn't require that they be, uh, you know, Pavarotti. Um, there can be things in that. People do want to interact with it, but the interactions are kind of, are mild. Um, they want to assemble things, they want to collect things. Um, and, you know, providing people with that sort of thing engages them in what you're doing, you know, trying to continues that relationship, reminds them that they liked it. Um, and then hopefully along the way, you, you lay out the things about how they can find that this might be something they want to do more of. Let me change tack. Um, one of the people we talked about, I don't know how you know him, uh, it was a guy called Bill Ivey who used to head up the NEA. Uh, and as soon as he left the NEA, he turned into an NEA basher, basically. <laughs> but an intelligent <laughs> NEA basher. And his basic thesis is, his thesis was, you know, at the NEA, I spent all my time in the East Wing, you know, uh, having tea with the... Uh, um, uh, uh, president's, uh, the first lady, um, or lobbying for my own narrow budgetary interests at the NEA. Meanwhile, there were vast tracts of legislative activity to do with intellectual property, to do with um, uh, um, uh, heritage, to do with all sorts of areas, uh, if you like, on the West Wing that I never got near. And therefore, if you look at the totality of American uh, cultural life, 
that, that in this agency I should have taken responsibility for and the NEA should, should have an interest in. I'm just sort of, you know, futzing around in the corner. Now, um, uh, you must pay enormous attention to legislative life. I do. Um, uh, particularly around uh, everything to do with rights, everything to do with intellectual property, etc. Tell us, A, how you monitor it, and B, much more significantly, how you act upon it. Right. Well, monitoring it, uh, it I guess there's no rocket science to it. Um, you know, there, there, are, uh, there are journals and magazines that, 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 uh, that give you the big picture when you want to hone in on things. We have, uh, we have lobbyists in Washington. We have a Washington office that monitors legislation. Um, I have people that I can talk to, and when I need to, I go down to Washington and, and talk to people about it firsthand. So um, the, uh, you have to, you, there is a learning curve, a big steep learning curve, particularly in the IP area. Um, and there is an awful lot of uh, baloney kind of being bandied about uh, as in trying, you know, trying to persuade people about positions um, that uh, are really all about self-interest. As with most things in Washington, everything at the end of the day boils down to economic self-interest. Um, and so, for example, a lot of the IP debate is framed in terms of consumers uh, and big companies, uh, little guys and big guys. And we spoke a bit about that. Yeah. We spoke a bit about the continuum uh, and, uh, from, as it were, the highly protective to the highly um, uh, permissive. Right. But what's, what's interesting about that particular debate is that the, the people who are against copyright would have you believe it's about the least restrictive to the most restrictive. And that's actually, then you have to turn that axis, if you will, 90 degrees because the real issues are not about fair use and maximal and minimal copyright. What they then turn that to is accusing everybody of being copyright maximalists. They turn to not wanting to protect people who are distributing exact copies. And that has nothing to do with copyright maximalism. It has everything to do with uh, you know, having um, the right to make money on someone else's intellectual property, um, the right to distribute a movie for free or a song for free or you know, sell a product that takes advantage of free, uh, unlicensed, um, unlawful activity in rights. And so um, it, is a, it is the first red herring, I think, to talk about copyright minimalism and maximalism. Um, what actually turns out, for example, a company like mine, um, as, with, uh, as with arts organizations, um, I think are really aimed down the middle when it comes to you know, how broad copyright should be. Um, until five years ago or 10 years ago, when it came to copyright lawsuits, most of the ones that we would be involved in were about defending us against claims of copyright theft for some things that you might even find silly, um, about an architect claiming they were entitled to get paid because a, his building was in the backdrop of a movie. Real case. Uh, we got sued by Whammo because in some comedy somebody fell off a slip and slide and we defamed their product. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of silly stuff. Um, our company depends on fair use every day. If you watch John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, you see clips all over the place. We care deeply about the ability to do commentary and the ability to uh, you know, the movie, as you, everybody who's ever watched a movie knows, you know, not, none of them were original. Everything takes a concept that was, you know, if not in Shakespeare, certainly in something that preceded it and reuses it and reworks it and it becomes part of the popular culture. So uh, for those who would say, you know, this is about locking up culture, it's really not true. Um, and the other thing is about copyright law is that copyright law says specifically, I think it's section 102 of the Copyright Act, that copyright doesn't protect ideas. 
Um, in fact, artists are all about getting their ideas out in the marketplace. Artists and journalists and all that are about getting people to engage in the conversation and think about things a different way and make that their own way and then expressing themselves. It's about just the expression piece of it. So what the current debate is from our perspective is about this issue about unlawful downloading. It's about, you know, do people who are intermediaries on that have a responsibility to do something about keeping piracy from going on? And uh, interestingly enough, the people who are funding the debate on one side are companies like Google and the Consumer Electronics Association, both of whom are making big piles of money uh, selling advertising against other people's stuff. Um, or in the case of Google, in the case of the Consumer Electronics, selling devices and other sorts of things that if they can use content in as many different ways as possible, they can make more money. Um, and on the other side of the content owners, movie studios and, and record companies and uh, to a lesser extent arts organizations now and labor, which is on this camp, which is now saying, but wait a second, you guys are making lots of money on the stuff that we're spending money on, um, and is that right? Uh, but that's really where the debate lies. Um, at the core of it, the people who are funding the anti-copyright forces are Google and the Consumer Electronics Association. The people who are funding the pro-copyright forces are you know, the Motion Picture Association, the Recording Industry Association, and various big economic forces. And there's a big economic forces battle. Um, and you know the, the kind of consumer kinds of issues, uh, which are very, very important. And as you can tell from my presentation, I really believe we're on are more on the content side than they are the user side. There are arguments in both directions, and actually the debate's much more complicated than that, but those are the economic forces that are battling it out. Um, so, And internationally? Uh, internationally, it's really interesting. Um, internationally, uh, in the developed world, uh, largely, you're seeing um, a, it moved from kind of, the, the anti-copyright movement kind of started in the academy. Uh, and interestingly enough, law professors not economists, not business professors, but law professors. And, um, and they kind of had free reign because nobody was taking them very seriously. And then as they began to get real traction, I think um, the, the establishment has kind of begun to kind of swing back the other direction. And so in Ireland, you now have uh, three strikes, which means if, you're, um, if there's peer-to-peer -peer file sharing on your computer, um, you'll get notices. And if you don't stop it, ultimately they can turn off an internet connection. That's the law in France now. It's going to be the law in the UK. Spain is working on blocking pirated sites. Um, Sweden has shut down the Pirate Bay. Uh, you know, the developed world is, is, is getting onto the, you know, we have to protect rights bandwagon. The developing world, interestingly enough, maybe not interestingly enough, wants no copyright and wants this stuff all for free. So there's a whole battle going on in the world of intellectual property organization, WIPO, where you know, copyright is the way that the, uh, the economic powerhouses, um, you know, destroy the unaligned countries of the world and keep us from getting, uh, getting knowledge. Um, what's interesting is when I talk to people in some parts of the developing world, I was talking to a guy who's very active on this issue in Brazil. And Brazil is a country that is against copyright. You know, they, you're, not, you're not allowed to take any action against a work uh, unless there's a court order, at least this is the new proposed legislation, unless there's a court order saying that it's copyright infringement. Um, the, uh, um, what he said is that actually what one of the things, one of the forces, and maybe this is, this is overly simplistic, one of the forces that's going on is that um, artists uh, in large parts of the developing world are also politically active. Um, that in a lot of the developing world, art is about uh, making a point, making, speaking up, making a political message. That's threatening to a lot of the governments in the developing part of the world. 
and not having uh, you know, a private ownership of IP um, is a way to kind of keep that from becoming an economic force. Now, that's an interesting perspective um, that I hadn't thought about, frankly, until the last couple of weeks. Uh, but that is, that's a force that's going on. If you can get all the, if you can get all the artists to use uh, commons licenses or licenses that essentially say the work's available to be reused for free, then um, you know, lo and behold, artists aren't getting economically rewarded for their art, uh, and and they're less of a threat. Um, so I do think that's one of the forces that's going on in the developing world, um, because otherwise I I, I kind of couldn't figure it out. You'd think a country like um, uh, like Brazil or India or other places would actually want to uh, have strong copyright protection for their works uh, because they have robust IP industries. India has a, has a very strong uh, movie industry um, and the like, and you would think that they would want to protect those and be able to get, uh, get the economics out of them. Interesting. Um, you mentioned rock band. Um, and one of the in interesting things about it is we have, um, professional arts organizations have tended to draw an increasingly sharp line between the professional and the amateur. And in a sense, we have allowed amateur life to atrophy underneath us to some extent. And uh, that's um, important and bad in the long term because a lot of long-term audience development comes from a healthy relationship between professional and amateur and the amateur music makers become audiences. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, uh, we're in an odd period where in some ways we're living in a golden age of creativity and amateur participation. If you go to, I don't know, you go to YouTube and you press, and you press Nick Drake, who was, uh, those of you who know, an interesting 1970s uh, guitarist, you will see thousands of people you know, sitting, you know, whether they're in Wisconsin or whether they're in Uzbekistan, showing each other the tunings of Nick Drake um, uh, tunes uh, uh, and, you know, demonstrating how well they can play them amazingly well. And, uh, and the, the technology that's available to us allows this incredible amateur participation in ways. I grew up in North Wales. I love jazz. I never got to see any. I used to tune in the radio at night. Now, you know, there isn't anything that I can think of no matter how obscure <coughs> with a glass of scotch in my hand, that I can't be listening to it, you know, three minutes later, having downloaded it. Um, it doesn't matter how obscure, you can track down pretty well everything now. Um, so we live in this incredible golden age of access and creativity. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and in a sense, we haven't been able to place cultural institutions quite in the middle or at the right angle to all that. You seem to have done better in a way. In other words, that, that your industry has embraced that in various ways. Um, why, because you know enough about the, our, our guys, why are we, as it were, um, what, why do you think it is that we have not, we are you know, sitting in a rather chilly environment at the same time that for many it is this golden age? I don't know, I mean, I, I don't really have an answer to that. I, don't, I think at Jazz at Lincoln Center, We've done a pretty good job with that. Um, yeah, I can't. I can't say that. But you can say that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, we have, we have the, uh, you know, we have a jazz band competition. Um, we have a middle middle school jazz academy. My six year old daughter, uh, you know, spent two years um, at Weebop, and you know, we'll still hear, uh, you know, now that now she's six, but she still hears, uh, you know, um, Winton or 
Louis Armstrong or Ella Fitzgerald get on the radio and she knows who they are and she likes them. Um, we've done a lot about kind of encouraging amateur yeah, it's, activity. It's a vast part of our, the totality um, of our activity. It is, and I think it's something that's very appealing to donors. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that, you know, I'm sure you talk about in this class a lot, um, and, and it's true when we talk about new media, um, is that you have a lot of different people that you are trying to please, and donors are one of them. Um, and there are some things that donors really like to support that may or may not be, um, you know, drive your audiences or drive even the mission <laughs> that well, um, but which are things that you might be willing to do because they're not so, you know, uh, at crossways with mission and they help you generate revenue on the donation side. Um, but I think, I think on this issue, I think it's really important and I do think that uh, cultural organizations should take from that page, uh, whether they're arts organizations or otherwise, and it shouldn't just be about appreciation. I really do think that you know, engaging with whatever the art is, um, is, is a, just a really important way of understanding what it's about. Um, I, don't think, I don't think without playing an instrument you could ever really understand jazz the way um, instrumentalists do. I don't think just by listening. And I think that's true about art, and that's probably true about opera, although I wouldn't try. Uh, and it's true about a lot of other arts as well. I just think you get a deeper understanding and therefore are more committed to it and more interested in it if you can figure out a way to, uh, to participate. And I do think that's an area where all arts organizations ought to try to develop um, relationships. Now one of the things we've done at Jazz and Lincoln Center too is try to think about the power of that program delivery to individuals. Um, it's a relatively inefficient way uh, to participate. Um, the jazz band competition where, you know, essentially we just give away free charts and all of a sudden we have um, uh, tens of thousands of bands participating uh, is an incredibly powerful way uh, to leverage resources. Um, so thought being given to, you know, when you're dealing with the amateur competition, getting them into your building, um, you know, may not be the best way in order to get amateurs engaged around your art. Uh, one of the things Metropolitan Opera done in the new media way um, is get uh, opera into theaters um, and around the country. Um, that's that's a, 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 a you know a different way to try to engage audiences outside of your your space. Training because they 
just like it and want to keep doing it. It's yeah. kind of like when you play intramural sports and you know you're never going to get on a professional sports team, but you're just doing it for fun. Well, right. And in some sports, there's a way to do that, right? In some sports, there are intramurals, and then you can be in college and do intramurals, and then you can play softball with your friends. Um, dance is like one that's weird that way. Um, there isn't a path for amateurs. It's a big, wide path of people who come in, and it gets narrow. And well, there is, and in fact, in fact, starting this fall, um, there's a uh, Microsoft has a, um, a technology called Natal, which is going to be on um, on Xboxes and on various other Microsoft devices, that um, allows you to interact in dance and movement That's with the. It's it, it, the technology is called Natal, N-A-T-A-L. Um, there are going to be a ton of dance games and various other kinds of things that use this technology, but uh, you're going to be able to kind of interact with the screen. It uses uh, video cameras <laughs> to locate where you are in space, so then all of a sudden you're dancing, but you're on the screen. <laughs> and uh, it's very cool. <laughs> it's very cool. Um, we a lot of this in June is what's called E3. It's the enter it's the uh, electronic entertainment exposition or the big video game fair. And uh, and at E3, there's going to be a ton of stuff using this new technology. And some of the things I've seen are very, very cool. So maybe, um, like, like Rock Band, it starts out in the popular arts. Uh, but there may very well be ways to use this technology um, to, uh, to engage people in, the, in, in um, you know, more formal kinds of art as well. And your, your point is incredibly important one. Essentially, Ellington um, is not about creating uh, a route through for people to become professional jazz musicians. It's about creating a context in which families, not just the individual and the band, but the entire family, engage with the music and become, as it were, lifelong lovers of the music. Mm -hmm. uh, not only do we not care, but it's explicitly not the intention for it to be a conservatory. It's explicitly the intention that, this is, that we're equipping people who are going to have other careers to be able to either play or just appreciate uh, and have a familiarity with the music and a confidence <coughs> about finding their way around the music will last all their life. Very, so, some do become professional players, but it's absolutely explicitly not the intention. I wonder if there's an intimidation factor too. Like if you go to Dance New Amsterdam and they're trying to cultivate students and they're cultivating pre-professional dancers or professional dancers, but then you go to the YMCA and they're teaching dance classes and they're having to turn people away because, because it's, it's seen as it's not a professional. It's not for professional. You can just have fun. Yeah. You're saying they're turning people away. You mean that it's very popular, the idea? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know the YMCA by my house. You can't get into dance classes there. <coughs> they're so popular and they're so crowded. But then you've got Mark Morris Dance Company or whomever catering to this sort of professional track. And it's, it's not, it's, it is geared toward, toward this, this particular, as opposed to fun or leisure right. or appreciation. Right. Most of the people probably haven't, and they're all ages, and it's so much fun, and it's amazing. 
amazing because it's not difficult choreography. Right. Because the point is not the choreography or how well you dance. The point is to get you moving. So anyone at all these different levels, amateur, professional, whatever, can enjoy themselves. Like but it's just band. like rock band. But it's it's just interesting to me. It's like it's the fitness clubs that have figured this out, mm -hmm. maybe, and now now maybe dance studios are starting to figure it out. Well, and if you and if you were if your arts organization would catering to dance, then you know this it's you have now figured out a residence with an audience, and or somebody has, and now it's your job to figure out how to engage with that audience. I mean, it, it can't be one of the things that is is you can't be too far ahead or behind your your audience. You have to you have to you have to That's observe them, participate with them, engage with them, figure out what's working. Um, and I do think there's a lot of people who set off on a mission and they think, you know, my audience isn't following me, it's my audience's problem. Yep. Um, and you can't, you can't let well, yourself get there. one of the dangers of mission in a way. Mission creates sanctimony, mm -hmm. by which I mean that, you know, mission gives you a pretext for solipsism. It gives you a pretext for saying, actually, the market is wrong and I'm right. Now, that's not what mission is supposed to be about. Unless you can engage intelligently and polemicize and somehow effectively pull people with you, then you're actually failing your mission. Right. You know, your mission isn't to be, you know, to go down in flames, you know, uh, holding to the one true faith. Your mission is to create um, and communicate and create audiences for this thing that you're doing. But you would be amazed at how angry and resentful many organizations are about their audience's inability to understand what yeah. they're doing. I was just going to go there. You have to, you have to take as a given, uh, whatever your choice is of organization, um, that you are you know, five orders of magnitude more sophisticated than your audience um, on, your, on your art. And that's not because they're idiots. It's because you spend all day or you spend lots of time studying your art. You're bored with the stuff that you've heard of all the time because you've seen it a lot of times. It was exciting for you once, but it's no longer. Your audience is seeing it for the first time, or you know, or the second time. Um, you being able to uh, be interesting to the artists and be interesting to the people at the highest levels, uh, just having studied it and lived with it and really care about it, um, and at the same time serve people who are just being introduced to things for the first time in a way that isn't like you know eating cod liver oil, but is like engaging and interesting and something that's accessible, um, is the challenge. My my analogy for jazz at Lincoln Center is if you imagine a conveyor belt, and at one end of the conveyor belt is the expert who knows what color socks Duke Ellington wore you know, on the third Tuesday, 1943. Believe me, there are those people. And at the other end of the conveyor belt is somebody who's heard something a bit jazzy. You know, they've heard kind of blue at a party, or they've heard a soundtrack, and they thought that was interesting. I am more concerned with that guy and how to move that guy onto the conveyor belt than I am the guy who knows what color socks Duke Ellington was wearing. That person might say, oh my god, what are you programming that for? But they can look after themselves. They can curate their own experiences. They don't need us. These guys, we need to find ways, in non-patronizing ways, in which they can engage with the music. We don't compromise about the music, but I'll compromise on everything except the music. In other words, I'll compromise on you know, the context in which it's found, what we say about it, etc., so that they, as it were, so that we can empower them to move down that conveyor belt to the point where they can then begin to, to curate their own experiences. Right. And, if they, and if they come in the door on the simple experience, and you, show, you start talking about time. Duke Ellington's socks, yeah. they're gone. Yeah. You know, they, they, they went out the back door. So you have to give them the next one. You've got to give them something that's a baby step forward. Um, you know, we were talking about rock band. 
you know, people were worried that rock band was going to teach people not to not to learn musical instruments because here was this easy experience with buttons. What rock band did was it the the um, there's this place called Guitar Center that sells electric guitars and stuff like that. They said it was the best thing that ever happened. Right? Kids came in, they all wanted to play the songs that they learned on rock band. So giving them that baby step, giving them something accessible that doesn't take 10 years of learning how to play a musical instrument in order to sound halfway decent, enabled them to get on a path. And now you have to kind of give them the next, next baby step, give them something you know, that, that they can live with and that they can enjoy. It doesn't feel like work, but feels like something that they're really, uh, is really something that they want to do and don't have to do. Can I ask a, a jazz at Lincoln Center question? Because in, in the, the theater, and there's this trend of talkbacks after. Do you do, you do talkbacks? Well, it's very interesting. You mean after or before? Um, you know, we, this is a live conversation. The answer is we don't or we haven't. Uh, we do pre-concert talks, um, but we haven't done talkbacks. Uh, but we are going to experiment next season, basically. We've, we've got an area called the Hall of Fame, and uh, what we're going to do is have one of our sort of basically curators, for want of a better word, somebody like Phil Schapp or Ken Drucker or someone, basically we're going to say, and there are, you know, come for a chat, those who want to come for a chat and a drink after the show, and um, we'll discuss what we thought it was about and what you thought it was about. Um, uh, our nervousness is, you know, uh, and the only way to tr is just is just to find out is how many people are prepared to stay at you know like ten fifteen ten thirty um, uh, are we going to get are we are we just going to get as it were the hardcore guys who know it all anyway or are we going to get those uh, how many of the sort of the curious um, uh, the other thing is it's part of creating it's the very important part of that is and we've talked about this turning the event into an experience. In other words, turning it into something which makes, you know, the metaphor I use is to try and make the building as sticky as possible so that people want to hang around afterwards and that there's a hang space and all the rest of it. So we want to try and do it informally as we can with a drink in their hand, basically seeing this as all part of the experience of, of coming to jazz at Lincoln Center so that there is something that's beyond just the performance. I mean, we're helped in that anyway because we've got things like the club, but the answer is we don't and we should. Any other questions? Because I, I, I need to spring yeah. you, I know. Can I just bring up one last yeah. It seems like a lot of these education, like looking at the education system, unfortunately, a lot of nonprofits don't have many ways of making money. And so, especially right. like in the theater world, I've seen it, and like in circus arts, the main thing for the big time people, the names you know, they have uh, education academies or institutions where that people come and that's where they make the money to, right? Like you can go, you can go study theater in the summer for a four week intensive right. in hundreds of places, right? And they don't seem to care whether or not you're there as an amateur or professional. They, it's like a money-making thing for the institution. And I just wonder like, how much of that sort of clouds the whole. Like, it's great if everyone could sort of afford to. Well, yeah, sorry, that's pretty complicated. There are the, you're right. Most dance companies' dance schools are sources of black ink, not red ink. And they are there as profit centers, not cost centers. True. Um, that, I only, I can only extrapolate from Jazz at Lincoln Center. In Jazz at Lincoln Center, that doesn't affect, and we're not that dissimilar, it doesn't affect the quality of what we do, but it does affect the pricing of what we do, and therefore it affects to who has access. And I often, you know, worry that we have great, I, I believe genuinely we have great education 
uh, uh, very, very high standard throughout, pretty well for every age. But we also follow the money. What I mean by that is that we have to go where the money is. Um, if you look at Essentially Ellington, one of our preoccupations with Essentially Ellington is Essentially Ellington takes really committed band directors to work. This is our National High School Jazz Band competition. Right. It takes, what you need are really committed band directors. Where do you get really committed band directors? You tend to get them in affluent suburban schools. Why is it that Se Seattle, Florida, um, Connecticut, uh, these places tend to do very well in Essentially Ellington? Uh, uh, they tend to do very well because they're the guys who can afford the band directors who really, you know, uh, push it. So, so, you know, again, you see it, and you see it in the uh, ethnic uh, composition of the bands. So, what a, so our strategy for that has been to try and, and appropriate funds to invest in band directors' academies so that we work with band directors in schools that are not as privileged uh, uh, and we try and stick with them and support them so that they, t they have then got, as it were, a network and some support. Um, uh, that, that is red ink, not black ink. Um, uh, a, uh, uh, and it's a sort of organizational institutional commitment. But if we just followed the money, um, uh, you know, similarly with Webop, we have the, the, uh, what, what um, Michael's talking about uh, with his kids, Weebop is a um, uh, is basically introduction to jazz for kids from two to five, basically. So, um, uh, and at Jazz at Lincoln Center, you know, you pay the money and you go, and it's a profit center. But we also have an arrangement with Head Start in Harlem, where we do one. Uh, we also do a, a, a Weebop program uh, at a highly uh, at a highly subsidized level. Um, uh, one's black ink, the other's red ink. Any other questions? For Michael. Sure. Just a comment about the, I have to say, about the difference between mm. Viacom and, and your organization and moving something forward where you have the 200,000 and Absolutely. you have to piece it together. The difference between analyzing something from what is your core business to what is your core business and what mission of what funder will it appeal to. So your essentially Ellington, in my case, we do that for national identity. Somebody else does it for arts and education. Somebody else does it for music lessons. And that, that's the sophisticated, difficulty, challenge of raising the money. I agree. I think the also the other fundamental difference comes with scale. Um, we, are, we are in a business, all of us, of micro-businesses. In other words, even the largest arts organization, largest arts organization in the world is the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera is, is five times or six times larger than Jazz at Lincoln Center. Jazz at Lincoln Center is a big monster. It's by far the biggest jazz organization in the world, for-profit or not-for-profit. It's, budget? okay, budget size. So yeah. Jazz at Lincoln Center is a $36 million operating budget. And um, uh, uh, Metropolitan Opera is a 280 million operating budget. What is your annual turnover? Mm, 13 billion. 13 billion, okay. <laughs> now, you see, uh, uh, the fund you know, there are fundamental issues that are around scale and, and about, and they're not just about organizational capacity. They're also about, you know, your influence on the marketplace. Um, and um, uh, clearly, you know, micro-businesses have, if you're in the arts, you don't think of yourself as in a micro-business, but you are basically in a, in a very, very small business with a very, 
under-articulated division of labor within it. And I think that one of the things that we do wrong sometimes is we look at the Viacoms and we read all our um, strategic planning textbooks that have been written for the Viacoms and they've been written for, you know, and we try and apply that stuff to us and no wonder we go mad because, um, as it were, we try to do far too many things. Our funders try and make us do far too many things too. Um, uh, uh, and as we sort of scramble around trying to, you know, patch all this, this, this patchwork of philanthropic funding together, we say, yeah, I can do that, yeah, I can do that, I can do that. And what, what you tend to do is, is just take on a burden of complexity that is greater than is, you know, you're basically trying to, tr trying to run something not as complex of, as Viacom, clearly, but something for which an appropriate scale would be far, far larger. And it comes back to what we've been talking about a bit earlier, which is how do you do that to your organization? How can you, most strategic planning processes that I, I work with organizations were really about how can we do fewer things better? Yeah. And how can we explain to people and create a mandate for all our organizations to do fewer things better? Meanwhile, the challenge of the funders, uh, the challenge for us for the funding community is we tend to go out there and say, yeah, okay, I can do that, I can do that. And we can solve all your civic problems. We can f solve your urban urban regeneration problems. We can solve your tourism <laughs> problems. We can, you know, no problem at all. And it, what it means is we take on not only complexity of purpose, uh, but also complexity of objective. Right. Some of, some of that is, uh, is you know, uh, a great fundraiser said to me that the way you describe your mission is you figure out what your donor's mission is, and you figure out how that's what yours is too. Uh, so there is a little bit about you know trying to. Uh, present yourself um, in different ways to different people who have different things they want to interest them in. But one of the things I can say is that there's a, Ellen Futter, who the Museum of Natural yeah. History, once said to me, um, she summed all that up in two words, and she said her, her method of strategic planning, she said, is no hobbies. No hobbies. No hobbies. And that, that's, that's so true. It, it's, a, it's a great line. I haven't heard it. It's a great line. But, but also, you know, challengingly, one of the ways in which we manage is to say yes to people rather than no. Uh, we don't pay them a lot of money, so we can at least indulge their enthusiasms, i.e. their hobbies. So what happens is that, you know, the head of education has a particular interest. Who, you know, are you the person to say that it's not strategically aligned or not? She's got the funding for it, she cares about it, she, uh, she does it, goes out and gets the money for it. Then, you know, you, you become, as it were, much more complicated by virtue of, of, of the enthusiasms of your staff and, and, uh, and the funding opportunities that they present or invent. Right. Would you also say that you know, in Viacom you, you don't do too many things that don't generate a profit? Uh, I wish I could say that. <laughs> That's certainly our lens. In, in, the, in the nonprofit world, I mean, we, we look at our audience problem and we say, oh, we, now we need to get into the education business where you know, if you've got a video game that's not doing well, you might just like, close it's, shop it, it, instead it. of starting a you know, Guitar Hero training school. Right. Yeah. To that, develop that, audiences for Guitar Hero. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. Although I would say that I think arts organizations should think of themselves in the same way in that regard. And it's a little heretical, and you may not want to say that to, to all of your, your world. Um, even the things that we do that lose money are part of mission. And at the end of the day, the mission is part of how we raise money. So um, when we think about red ink and black ink, uh, you know, for Viacom, it's about sales, right? We're not asking for people for donations. Um, but it is a, it's about, uh, it's, it's a pretty simple equation. Can we sell it for more than it costs us to make it? Um, for an arts organization, uh, some of the sales is earned revenue. It's what's coming in the door. It's ticket prices. It's, uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's uh, merchandise. Um, but some of it is uh, what's interesting to the city that's going to help make a contribution, what's interested to my board, what's interested to 
uh, foundations that I'm going to appeal to and all those sorts of yeah. things. And, um, and so it's a different P&L, but it's still a P&L. Yeah. If, if you're out there doing something that your funders don't care about, uh, funding, um, and, uh, you know, and it's not generating revenue, I do think you should be asking yourself why you're there. Thank you. Okay. That's great. That's I'm really grateful to you. Okay. Yeah. The preceding program was brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu.